This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why, hello there, sports fans, and welcome to part two of my chat with the inimitable, inspiring, and all-around wonderful Sid Bullens. Sid's book, Transelectric, My Life as a Cosmic Rockstar, is available now on Amazon.com or at your local booksellers. Right after you snatch up that hot title, go on over to Patreon.com slash Craig and Friends, check out the reward tiers, see which one matches you the best, sign up, support the show, and set yourself free. That's the place to get ad-free, uncut, and early editions of these episodes. Bonus episodes such as Solo and WeHo, aka Solo and Soho, when I'm across the pond. And speaking of people across the pond, my loves Ada and Peter are across the pond right now, and so every morning we have what we call transatlantic breakfasts. And some of them uh, tend to drift into more publicly-minded discussions, so the ones that do are shared with you. Some other hot features coming, but I don't want to tell you about them till they're there. One I can tell you about is early access to movie clubs, and by that I mean you participate in upcoming movie clubs, of which there are a plenty. My favorite film, To Live and Die in L.A., of course, by the late, great William Friedkin, will be given the movie club treatment with myself and my guest Gala Avery, who you will also hear on the Crimes of Passion movie club. And for Halloween, how could we do any better than the Hellraiser movie club featuring none other than Goth Charlotte? It's her favorite franchise, and to a lot of people's shock, I've never seen a one of them. So, I will be diving deep into the catalog, hopefully getting in as many sequels as possible. 
but I'm sure you've seen it. And if you haven't, hop on it. It's on Prime Video right now. Before we get into the show, got to tell you about YouTube. YouTube, you know about. So let me rephrase that. YouTube.com slash Craig and Friends is the place that you will be able to see all of these shows in video form going forward. Also, there's a lot of shows in the cupboard that have not been distributed but have been filmed. So that means they're all coming at some point in the near future. With all that taken care of, it's now time to get into part two of my chat with Sid Bullins. Make believe is not pretend. We might be ill, but we're on the mend. It never starts, it never ends. Welcome to Craig and Friends. Welcome to Craig and Friends. Welcome to Craig and Friends. I just knew who I was. I always knew who I was. I always knew I didn't fit in. I always knew I didn't relate to women. I always knew that I had to pretend to be something that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. As best as I could, although um, I I won't say never, but I rarely, really tried to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I say rarely, I mean there were as an evening here or a <laughs> moment there, you know, it yeah, wasn't like yeah. a period of time. <laughs> it was like a gala. You know, a it, thing. It, was, it was a thing. It wasn't, you know, a, a, a long time. Yeah. But anyway, um, on that said, I did feel like I was walking a line. We talked about the gender line mm-hmm. early. You know, I did feel like I was walking a tightrope. I couldn't, I didn't, I really didn't want, especially when my kids were little and everything in the 80s and 90s, I didn't want to stand out too much as mm-hmm. an anomaly sure. from other people, other women, whatever. Um, so I still wore my jeans, my T-shirts. If I got dressed up, I wore man-tailored Yeah. Calvin Klein women's jackets or slacks or, you know, loafers or, you know, whatever. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, I was still, you know, a a masculine trending woman, but I wasn't androgynous. Right. Like I was, I mean, I am anyway. And my husband and I would go out to dinner and they'd say, can we help you gentlemen all the time? Wow. Wow. Well, you had, a, uh, if memory serves, a short, short haircut, hair. but Mostly, still... Except in the 80s, I had, I made it grow long, but uh, okay. had to have the 80s hair. But even then, <laughs> if you look at my publicity shots from the 80s, yeah. I look like a guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just, well, I look like an 80s guy. When you I know? showed Ada the album covers, uh, she said, oh, that's a guy. Yeah, exactly. You know, and also we're very, you know... Yeah. Uh, uh, open mind, not just yeah. open minded. That sounds a silly thing yeah. to say, but you know we're very uh, versed in in all of the spe- spectrums yeah. Yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. So and uh, so that was her initial reaction. She yeah. saw, you. I am, and people yeah. see me as a guy. Not I'm not. I was never a feminine woman. Right. Um, I remember as a child too, uh, yeah. seeing your records and going, oh, I know that name from Greece. Yeah. You know, it was very young, yeah. and I, I was like, oh. And, the, you know, and there's something, it's just like with Carol Pope from Rough Trade, mm-hmm. wh- um, when I was very young, I was, I was like, what? not what's going on here, but, yeah. you know, that kind of feeling yeah. of like, huh, you know, and yeah, always, yeah. always being uh, pulled towards uh, either gay or yeah. uh, things, 
cool things that are cool. <laughs> you, you, know? you and my wife should talk. She was always pulled. Yeah. She has a very interesting story, which I won't tell because it's her story. Sure. But that sounds lovely. I would love be, to about being You would love her. About being always attracted to trans people or people who came off as fluid or non-binary or, you know, always. Yeah. Her whole life. Yeah. And then she didn't know before she met me and I went to her to work with me on my one person show mm -hmm. in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I lived in Maine. I found her online, you know, as a solo show coach. And she had worked with one trans man before, but didn't really, you know, it was like more on, on his story. And he was in Australia, so they worked remotely sure. on Skype. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, before the days. And, um, but she really didn't know much. And she, even she'll say, when she was a little transphobic, like, how weird is that, you know, and all this. And she had, had been married twice, mm -hmm. but had also had a, a, a relationship with a woman. So mm -hmm. she, you know, was pretty open. Yeah. But, but again, uh, if there wasn't terms for transgender yeah. back then, to be fluid in your attraction was yeah. even not she more, but just as yeah. uh, foreign or unknown. A foreign. And she didn't even, she wasn't even even conscious of it. Yeah. Until she got with me. Yeah. And when she got with me, I was like her perfect fit. It was like, oh, should have had a V8. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, you yeah, know. Yeah. And what's interesting to me, and I'm just saying this now as kind of an adjunct to the story. Yeah. Is that she discovered that there are people like her. Right. Who nobody talks about. What's the category there? <laughs> Of people who know who they are, she knows she's a woman. She doesn't have a trans bone in her body. She's she's strong. She's got masculine attributes, if you will, but that's putting them in, in binary terms, sure. too, which I really don't want to do, but for the sake of conversation. And... And for ease of understanding, yes. because we still don't really we don't have, have the, the language. language in 20 years, no, I feel like we will. We don't have the language, but she's... You know, she's basic. She's a woman, full-on woman, believe me, and had sexually, you know, been with two genders, sure. I'll put, say, but when she got with me, it was like uh, her world was blown apart because she went, oh, my God. But anyway, here's this group of a lot of people who are attracted to who aren't themselves trans, right? Or or fetishists, like uh, because some you know uh, trans people say sometimes the difficulty in dating, particularly with younger folks, yeah, is that there's a sort of fetishization where they can only the uh, the person that is pursuing them only goes say forty percent of the way. You know, it's a yeah. sexual uh, sort of a fascination, but then they're not willing to go the whole way. There you go. Yeah, and my wife finds it the perfect fit. Yeah. Which is then, and I think because of that, those groups that, uh, that or the types of person that yeah. would be the fetishization type, because that's more uh, sort of, uh, I guess, in the news or something. Yeah. The other group, like your wife and many of us, mm -hmm. uh, again, not easily categorized yeah. or, or known yeah. about. Yeah. And and what's the name for them? Yeah. You know. Right. And maybe uh, to to a degree, uh, some kind of fluidity. Yeah, I, I'm not some sure kind what of it is. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's a very interesting thing. But anyway, um, 
I forgot where that started when I went off on that's my, okay. my wife. That's okay. That means we're having a nice conversation. Yeah, and it's it's all good. But um, I think it was about... Uh, oh, Nashville. Uh, Nashville. Uh, Nashville. And, uh, Way what, what back it, then. And what appeared to me as uh, the embracement. Of... So the embracement was of me musically. When I went to Nashville in 1990, because of the death we started talking about of my career as a rock star... Um, and I, uh, the song Send Me an Angel ended up being a part of uh, the Roy Orbison tribute to the homeless, which I don't even know to this day how I got to be in it. Well, for a reason, back to that. Again, but um, it just happened. And I and uh, uh, I, and I knew I was going to be a part of this. I won't go into this long story, but it was a wonderful evening. I was to be a part of and was uh, the all-woman band that sang Pretty Woman. Right. Bonnie Raitt, Katie Lang, Emmylou Harris, Wendy and Lisa from Prince's Band mm-hmm. and Wendy and Lisa. Yeah. They went off on their own. Um, uh, uh, Debbie Peterson of the Bangles, mm. uh, me, Carla something, Carla or? Azar on drums, but I feel, Oh, Tina Weymouth of the talking heads. So it was this fabulous group of women Yeah, that I somehow, and it wasn't of my doing. Was got, Don was? Don was and T-Bone Burnett were the music supervisors, and I had known T-Bone for many years before that, T-Bone Burnett. Great producer, music supervisor, songwriter, whatever. Mm. Uh, and I had, and Don, I had only met just then, that night. But Don, I don't know which one of them put me in the group to this day, but Don was was the one who asked me if I had a song. Hmm. That I could sing solo, right? On the and, and on have the a evening. song that you wrote. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, yeah. And by the way, if you look at the list of talk about a list people or stars or whatever you want to call them that were doing this tribute, it was on February twenty fourth, nineteen ninety, because it was my daughter's fifth birthday. Um, it's. Beyond, I could, I could forget it. You know, everybody from Bob Dylan down. Yeah, uh, everybody. I yeah. mean, just incredible. And here I was, and I named the women who were in the band. So I was doing that, and then he said, "Can you sing a song solo?" And I was like, I couldn't believe it. First of all, because there were so many artists, and he was going to add one more. Yeah. And I had Send Me an Angel, which I had just written weeks before. That was the life-changing song. That was the life-changing song. So I sang him the song in his living room somewhere out in North Hollywood or Hollywood or wherever he was. And he said, good, you're going to do that song. (laughs) And I did. And that song, again, life-changing, because I did it in and with... All of those people who were L.A. people, but they were also Nashville people. Mm-hmm. Amy Lou Harris lives in Nashville. Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd, who were had a great alt-country duo back then called Foster and Lloyd, who are two of my dear friends to this day. But I met them there. Dwight Yoakam, from California, but his country music. You know, Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills. You know, I mean, just the list goes on. Chris Isaac. 
I mean, I could sit here all day and come up with, oh, yeah. And then there was. And um, so Emmy Lou came up to me in the green room or in the hallway or something backstage after she heard me rehearse the song. And she said, and I'd never met her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had met her. Obviously, we were doing this little group song together. Yeah. But it was like, hi, how are you? Hi, I'm Cindy. You're Emmy Lou, And, you know, I was all thrilled to sure. meet her. And uh, she came up to me backstage and said, you have to come to Nashville. Here's my number. When you get there, give me a call. Mm-hmm. You would like it there. And I'm like, okay, you know, and and then F- Foster and Lloyd, Bill Foster and Radney Foster individually came up to me. They weren't a big name, but they're great. Look them up. They have individual careers for many years now. And they both came up to me individually and said, you got to come to Nashville. You know, we'll write with you. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So it took me... That, so that night was life-changing. Now, that was February of 90. Finally, in October of 90, I got in my car and I drove from Maine to Nashville. <laughs> oh, no, maybe I was in Connecticut at that time before I moved to Maine. And uh, wrote with Foster and Lloyd, called Emmy Lou, who had, became a champion of mine. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that started my songwriting career in Nashville. And what I found different from Nashville to Los Angeles, because I had tried for those months in between, I thought, okay, I'll go back to LA. Maybe I can write with some songwriters. Maybe I can get a song in a movie. Maybe I can sure. do some of that stuff that, and I, I kept coming back to LA cause I lived here and knew people and thought, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Nothing worked. Uh huh. So I finally said, okay, I'm going to Nashville. And the minute I got to Nashville, I felt like, I felt wanted. Yeah, it's an important thing. Is the word. I felt seen, wanted, had nothing to do with gender, mm-hmm. nothing to do with what I thought I was supposed to be and what I wasn't. They thought what I had done already was really cool. Yeah. They thought I was a good songwriter. They admired me on some level. So, and I was like, really? Wow, this is so cool. And again, it wasn't the ego. It was the acceptance of being and being seen. And being seen as a musician, as a songwriter, as a human being. Yeah, as a valid. They didn't, not one person said, oh, geez, you know, what is that? Or, or you know, oh, well, she had an album, but, you know, yeah, I yeah. didn't. Uh, Nobody did that, that on shit. any level, whether yeah. it was my looks or my career. It was totally accepting. And. And it wasn't, and I'm going to say this, and again, I'm saying things with you I don't think I've even thought about before, which is always cool. Really cool, and I'm uh, Um, I don't think it had anything to do with, of course, I was older now. I was 40 years old, 
the chi or the charisma or the 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 that thing that pulled in some of my early the early people Elton yeah. and Bob Crew and you know Dylan whoever else who, who were gravitated toward me mm-hmm. because of I I really do think it was because of um a more a, a larger package sure you know I mean, when we get older, we we do grow, we do change, we do get wiser a little bit. We do, <laughs> uh, in my case, you know, we do present something different. We're not right. the young whippersnapper out there trying to do whatever. And I was so grateful. And and so I kept going back because I was writing. Yeah. Come on, I didn't know. I mean, I had written, co-written maybe three songs before that Mm -hmm. so i was a solo writer you know how how do you do that but i was open you know and willing to grow hot and willing to grow how do you do this Mm -hmm. you know they sat me down and this they said writing a country song is completely different than writing any other genre forget what you think is a country song Uh uh-huh but we want your fresh ideas, musically, lyrically. What do you got? Right. We'll make them into what they should. Country, what can may, maybe be on a country chart? Yeah. You bring in the ideas. Now they didn't say that out loud, but that was the that was the gist. And yeah. I got that. I was I was told I was a breath of fresh air by one or two people, sure. kind of thing. And that's what they were looking for in Nashville at the time. So it it worked for five years until my life changed. Right, and your life changed with with the, the death, death of, of my of your daughter. Daughter, yeah. And that's that's a whole other story. And I don't have to go into it. I will. No, sit. but uh, and not to yeah. cut you off. Yeah. Uh, because I, obviously it's yeah. a harrowing thing yeah. to talk about. I'm sure writing the passages in the book that you did was like reliving at least parts of it over and over. But the thing that we can focus on is what you did with the grief afterwards and how you channeled that into something that gave a lot of people tremendous comfort. Yes. Maybe people who couldn't vocalize the feelings that you had that are universal, I imagine, in that situation, Uh, particularly when you wrote the individual families that um, lost children in the Columbine massacre. Mm-hmm. So just so people do know, my daughter, Jessie, was diagnosed with uh, fourth stage Hodgkin's disease when she was 10 years old in December of 1995. And she died suddenly because her cancer was so aggressive after there was some hope and back and forth and all that. Very suddenly, um, March 23rd, 1996. And I will say, for those of you, because you may have listeners that have lost children or loved ones, but losing a child, not there's no but. If you lost a loved one, it's horrifying and terrible. Those of you who have lost a child, it, it it's... A profound, uh, it's not life-changing, it's cell-changing. It 
changes the shape of your cells, I am absolutely convinced. Talk about not being the same person. You're just not. Mm -hmm. And I'm not to this day. And we could go on about, you could, we could do a whole podcast about that. But, um, she was redheaded and a spitfire. Uh, she was, uh, non-binary for her time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she hated dresses and wore, you know, if you, you go on my website, see pictures, you'll see pictures in the book. Um, she was, uh, incredible human being and you know after I mean I thought my life was over really um, my life was over I had to live because I had an, and have another daughter uh, Jesse's older sister Reed two, two and a half years older uh, was 13, just shy of her 14th birthday when Jesse died. Um, Jesse had turned 11 three weeks before her death. And uh, so I had another daughter, another young daughter, and I, Dan and I were separated by that time. We eventually came back together because we weren't divorced. Uh but we were living separately. We came back together somewhere in the first year after de Jesse's death because we really had to for our own uh, life for f to save ourselves. Sure, you know we we were the people who knew what we were going through. And Reed, my daughter, was going you know was going through her thing, and we had to be there for her in whatever way bereaved parents can be. Uh, which is different in a whole nother conversation. But about three months after Jesse's death, before I had moved back in with Dan, um, I f hadn't picked up a guitar. I hadn't thought about doing anything. You can't think. You just don't think. You talk about being in the moment. It's a different kind of being in the moment. And uh, every moment is profound and terrifying and horrible and horrific and all of that. Anyway, um, I picked up my guitar. I was in my apartment in Portland, Maine, and I picked up my guitar and I just started strumming it. And there was something about the feel of the wood and the string on my fingers and the vibration of the strings as I strummed, I don't even know what I was playing, that gave me some, when I use the word comfort, it's probably should be in 50,000 quotations, but that's the word I will use. And suddenly, it seemed like it was suddenly a song and the word only word I've used since then. And the only word I continue to use is emerged. It just emerged through my being out of my mouth. I didn't think about it. It just came out and it was a song called is a song called somewhere between heaven and earth. 
I sobbed through it. The the lyrics came out, but that song became the first of ten songs that I wrote in the next uh, year and ten months. That became an album, and there's a big old story in that. A, in the in between points about <laughs> how it became an album, and my because believe me, I didn't say, "Oh, geez, I've got a song now. I'm going to make an album about the death of my daughter." No, that didn't happen. Outside uh, forces, friends, yes, and musical supporters urged that on. Well, but before that, yeah, internally, sure. I was horrified that I had just written a song about the death of my own child. Sure. It wasn't a, I say there were two things happened. One, I was horrified for some reason that I had just written a song about the death of my own child. Like it made it more real than it already was. Yeah. And number two, I did feel the most minuscule, tiny, tiny, I say in my show, tiny, tiny spark of something alive in me. That spark of creativity. It gives me chills just now. Or that 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 thing within us that keeps us growing and changing hmm. on a larger scale. Yeah. But at this time... It was like, not to sound silly or pedantic or anything, but it was this tiny spark of, of life force in me. So I noted it. I noticed it. Even though I, I was like, are you kidding me? I just wrote a song about the death of my own child? You know, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you going to do with it? Not, not what are you going to do outwardly, but what do I do with it internally? Yeah. You know, and then I did think to myself, wait a minute. I mean, this is over a course of an hours or the day or whatever, as I'm absorbing what just happened. Yeah. You know, if I was a painter and I were grieving, I'd be like, you know, yeah. Slashing away on the canvas. If I were a poet, I'd be like coming up with whatever words were there. Mm -hmm. What makes this any different? Right. You're a songwriter. You write songs. And so that gave me some comfort. Again, I'll use that word, or some relief. Mm-hmm. And that was that. I had written that song. That was that. And then I wrote another one three months later. And then I wrote another one three months later. And then after the third one, I thought, oh, and I went and recorded those three in Nashville to give me something to do. And then, and I did, and they were like, oh, there's three songs. No thought of record deals or mm-hmm. putting them out or anything else. They were for me. Even Dan, my husband, hadn't heard the songs. Oh, wow. Yeah. No. 
They were mine. They were for me. Yeah. They weren't for anybody else. They were part of my grieving process. Even the recording of them with my A-list friends, you know, who all knew what they were doing and why. Yeah. It wasn't. And, and then the fourth song I wrote, The Lights of Paris, after I came back from a trip to Paris. Then I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I should do something with this. Mm -hmm. Then I, within the next year, I wrote more. And there's, and there's a story in there of how they all came together and, and what happened. And I put it out myself for me and with the purpose of rate of having them it i would going to print up a thousand i had help from friends designing the cover the cover is jesse's artwork herself but my friends who were graphic designers and artists and stuff helped me with the package i put the package together it was going to be a limited edition thousand copies i signed each one numbered them because they had a whole package with them yeah and i was going to donate all the money which I did to the Maine state of Maine children's cancer program. And that was it. I thought I'm going to print up a thousand, sell them, which I did. Yeah. I gave $25,000 to the Maine children's cancer program, all hundred percent of the proceeds mm -hmm. from the record. That was going to be it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, that wasn't it. And through friends, who I had given the record to, it got into the hands of Danny Goldberg, who was then, he had just left as the head of Mercury Records and was starting his own independent label, Artemis Records. And through my good friend, Jim Ferrat, who, if you don't know Jim, you should, because he was one of the original people of... Uh, uh, the Gay Activist Alliance. And had dealings with Jabriath. I, I don't know. Oh, no, that's where I know the name from, the oh, yeah. Jabriath film. But I, yes, I would yeah, love to. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so Jim has been a dear friend of mine for many years. Mm -hmm. And um, he was with Mercury and left when Danny left because he said worn many hats over the years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he gave it to Danny, and it f somehow months later, Danny finally went, well, maybe I should listen to this or something. And he called me, and he said, I want to put out your record. And I was like, I was not, I was like, I don't know. 
It's so personal. Yeah. It's for a reason. It's and what I said when I made the album and before I put it out as even the limited edition for the charity, I said to myself, I just want people to hear this who need to hear it. That was the original thought. Mm-hmm. Not I just wanted, but I want people. Right. Um, if it go be it went beyond beyond, great. But I, this is what I was my hope for the record because I knew. Well, I didn't know until I got my first letter from somebody. Somebody gave it to this woman who had lost a child. I got a letter at the Portland, Maine post office from a woman that said, you just said what I can't say. You've just let me know that I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. You've just, you know, it was, I cried, you know, I was in yeah. the parking lot crying, reading to it. And I thought, oh, this is, this is why. Because it was excruciating to make. And I had a lot of help. And if you want to see some A-listers, you can read the credits of that album, too. Bonnie Raitt sings on it. Brian Brian Adams sings on it. Uh, Lucinda Williams sings on it. Rodney mm-hmm. Crowell co-produced two of the tracks. Tony Berg produced two, three of the tracks. Uh, Stephen Souls, who lives here. You know, so many people. And uh, uh, helped me with the great Nashville musicians, my friend George Marinelli, who played with Bonnie Raitt right up until last summer. You know, I mean, just incredible, incredible people helped me. It was a really a group effort to do this. And that's where my gratitude, I have a lot of gratitude because I would not be sitting in this chair without other people. And, you know, you could have succumbed to bitterness in a couple different uh, eras of your life, obviously, mm-hmm. that one especially. And it's uh, it's an admirable thing that you didn't. I'm sure you grappled with it. You know, we all have bad days or weeks or whatever. But on the other side of things, or rather present day, it's uh, inspiring that you have such gratitude. Yeah, and you're right. Not every day. And I have to, I mean, I am grateful overall. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really, truly am grateful for everybody who I, who's ever helped me with anything in my life because the path of being me (laughs) has not been easy. Right. And I'm not alone. I mean, nobody's path is easy. But, you know, sharing your story is one of the things that helps people not feel so alone, much like your record. Which I imagine you said, obviously, that it made you cry. But whatever modicum of comfort or relief or whatever word best suits that, I imagine that another little sliver when you got that letter, as minuscule as it might be, must have affected you greatly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That letter broadened... I don't know if that's a great word, but it it expanded. It gave me even more than that, more than those words. It gave me hope that, uh, or or it let me know that what my wish for that album was, was happening. Yeah. Now, I didn't know at that time that it was going to come out on a worldwide level basis, But I knew, because here's the thing. 
somewhere, whether it came from my parents or the great beyond or whatever, I think every human being is here to be of service. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I can be as selfish, self-centered, my ego, whatever, as the next person or as any person. Sure. But there's some intrinsic internal mechanism where I really truly believe that if we don't help each other, we are nothing. I agree. And there are many days and many times through all the stuff I've been through where I haven't wanted to get out of bed. I still, to this day, I have a little house on North Haven, Maine, 12 miles off the coast of Penobscot Bay, 650 square feet. If you don't think that I think every single day, I just want to go to North Haven and never see another human being again, especially with all the hate and the vitriol and the targeting of trans people Mm -hmm. and the racism and the, 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 the stupid fucking ass shit that's going on and excuse me but you know the the going back to the caveman forget the middle ages yeah they're skipping that totally yeah you know and so men every day i say just i just can't handle it anymore yeah i've tried my best uh that feeling of like i can't do anymore yeah yeah i can't do it i'm not gonna do it forget it well, it's those same people who've helped me in the past, some of them, yeah. many of them, who, I don't know, somebody needs something about something, somebody wants to talk about something, somebody wants to do a podcast, somebody wants, you know, somebody asked me to write a book for crying out loud, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and... Would you like a tissue, by the way? I'm, no, I'm, I'm good. Okay. You know, it's, if if your audience can handle it, I can handle it. No, yeah, no, yeah. they can, but uh, sometimes yeah. we need a tissue. That's nah, all. it's all good. Uh, if my nose were running, then we'll sure. get one. I like to be a comprehensive host. You are definitely great. In fact, I said to myself before I got in here, do I do I have tissue? But uh, not because I thought I was going to cry, but because, you know, allergies. But anyway. <laughs> That's all it is. It's allergies. Uh, uh, you know, I... All I, I'm going to skip to this and we'll go back to somewhere between heaven and earth. Because somewhere, let me just say this about somewhere between heaven and earth. It has done its job. It continues. And the motor, the, 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 the flippers on the feet of somewhere between heaven and earth come from my daughter, Jessie. I know it. Mm-hmm. There's a line I say in my book about Jesse is the prow of my ship in her death. She points me in whatever direction I need to go in, and that's the way I go. And if I don't go in that direction, I usually end up at a wall somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I also say in that same paragraph, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. At least that's my story, because who knows, you know. And that's all that matters. Yeah. That's your story. I, I, and... I know now, you know, uh, um, 
and there are there are many Jesse stories, and someday we'll do it. We'll sit and have coffee, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, I'd love interested. to. But, um, you know, uh, so that so somewhere between heaven and earth has done, and is doing still, that work. I mean, I still get emails and. Not so much letters anymore, but emails from people or Facebook messages sure. from people or Instagram messages from people saying, you know, your album somewhere between heaven and earth, blah, you know, and the story. And I used to, and for, by the way, for 15 years until I, or maybe not quite 15, but close to 15 years before I transitioned, which was the end of it. I did concerts for bereaved parents. Mm-hmm. I went to Columbine. Yeah. You know, six months after it happened, I went and did a private concert for the Columbine families. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesse been gone three years at that time. I'm still friends with him. I We were texting on April 20th because mm. that was the anniversary. Um, I did palliative care conferences and onco- pediatric oncologist conferences and went to colleges and universities and did concerts and talks on death and dying and workshops and i mean i did that work yeah for 50 as as well as my own gigs behind it and sure. by the way here's the postscript on somewhere between heaven and earth it got me back into the music business as an artist almost uh you were almost maybe unaware it wasn't like oh this will happen you're just following the thing to following the, next thing. the trajectory of what happened when Artemis Records, Danny Goldberg, said, I want to put out this record. I sat down in his office in New York for our first face to face meeting when he was really going to do it. And I said, I'd rather sell this album out of the backseat of my car. That was my actual line than have this album not be treated with the integrity that it deserves. Yeah. In other words, I ain't doing nothing that's so much as hints of commercialism or, you know, whatever I meant at the time. So you're dressing it up or yeah, remixing you know, anything, or whatever. You yeah. can't do nothing. Yeah. What you what you're gonna get is what it is. It's the package, it's the songs, it's the mixes, it's the story. Yeah. There's no glazing over my daughter died and this is why I did this record. Right. You know, and he said, I get it. Okay, I get it. And uh, so I thought, okay, I can't get it out onto the global, you know, platform i i can't do any of this i didn't have a record deal or anything else before that so maybe this is what's supposed to happen Mm -hmm. and so more people can hear it who need to hear it right by this time my career forget rock star even (laughs) as a singer songwriter was not in my purview it wasn't there i was playing and I, I I'm sorry I was songwriting in Nashville yeah I did a few gigs at the Bluebird Cafe sure. or something like that but I wasn't an artist anymore I mm-hmm. was just a songwriter so and 
I have to say this for all those people who know how grieving goes. It was only a couple of years after Jesse died, a few a few years. So three years. So it was a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. So when I sang those songs on stage, it felt like what I was writing them. I was singing to her or about her or about me about her. Mm-hmm. So, so, and they aren't morbid songs. They're, they're all the reason that, that, that Danny Goldberg wanted to put it out as, as an album. If it were morbid and horrible and bad songs, he wouldn't have touched it with a 10 foot pole. Right. Right. It was Dave Marsh, the wonderful rock crit- critic from the and, globe and author who, who said to me, you've crossed over into making art out of tragedy. Mm-hmm. And these are commercial, using the quotes, they are universal is the word I mm. think he used. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they can be. So anybody can hear them. Now, these aren't my words or thoughts. I didn't write them with any purpose yeah. of this. Thank you, God in heaven, help us, whatever that thing is up there or around here or wherever it is. I think it was the combination of knowing internally now the craft of songwriting, and I learned a lot in Nashville, and I learned to be a better songwriter. So having the internal mechanism of knowing mm-hmm. how to write a song yeah with the external or internal in another way the 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 the, the truth the abject utter unfettered truth and ex- of the experience of losing my daughter combined to do that yeah to make 10 songs that were universal and honest and truthful at the same time, and just happen to be good songs, right? With great musicians. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I better than I've ever been, which is the last song I wrote, which or second to last song I wrote of the ten, became the single. It's still played today. Every once in a while, I hear people telling me. Um, it was, did make the charts. Uh, the record was released worldwide. It became my biggest, which is saying much, but my biggest record ever. And still to this day is viable Hmm. and will be my legacy. Now, when you were doing the palliative care conferences or was it conferences? Yeah, conferences and yeah. And consultations, Mm -hmm. et cetera because we were talking about being of service uh, like on paper to someone who may have not have gone through something like that or is afraid of death because a lot of people are afraid of the subject as you mentioned in your book there was a friend who basically said i can't deal with you Mm -hmm. being in such grief which that's a horrible sandwich to be served because what do you do with that because i'm sure that there's resentment towards the friend and yeah and, but you can't get out of the grief. You can't go, well, I understand. I'll, I'll, I'll talk yeah. about it less. So uh, the idea of digging in even further to talking to people who are 
either in stages of the similar grief that you were in or looking ahead mm-hmm. to what mm-hmm. is coming. Um, I'm wondering what that felt like because of being of service. I, I just get the sense that it was uh, fulfilling in a way. And that might not be the right word, but I my feeling when you said that was that uh, being of service to do that for others has either, like we said, the comfort or relief gave you some kind of... Um, if not lift, uh, again, fulfillment. Yeah, no, it was definitely, uh, 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 first of all, having now listened to hundreds and hundreds and I don't know how many grieving parents' stories, some absolutely horrific. Um, all of them are absolutely horrific some losing multiple children, uh, you know, all kinds of, obviously Columbine is, you know, uh, horrific in itself, all kinds of ways and uh, ages and, uh, and it doesn't matter if you lose a child. My mother lost my sister at 60 years old, a little different, but than losing a younger child, but not much. In the big scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer is yes, it was purposeful. There was a purpose to my music. There was a purpose for doing what I was doing. I was serving a purpose. Mm-hmm. I, somebody said to me at one point, oh, you're the poster child for grieving parents. You know, okay. You know, uh, I, you know, I, as long as people were getting something from me that they didn't have before, I didn't have access to mm-hmm. before, whether it was recognition, uh, relation, um, expression, expression. Yeah. I mean, hun- I, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard people say, you said what I couldn't say my what i couldn't find the words for and that's something people don't even know yeah they don't have until until they do yeah and the thing about the album was it was 10 songs but they were written over a period of a year and 10 months so for example somewhere between heaven and earth was my longing 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 just to have some connection with my I'm going to say it, dead child. People don't even like to use the word dead. I use it all the time because dead is dead and that's what it is. And that's what is. In fact, it bothers me. This is just an aside. When people say someone passed away, they Mm -hmm. died. Now, that's just me. I don't hold it against anybody. I'm not, you know, it's not like I go, you know, I don't make a face or do anything. Of course, people say somebody passed away. I say deceased, some, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. And I'm softer about it now than I used to be. I can imagine and understand having a very sharp response to that. No, my daughter didn't pass away. She died. Yeah. She's dead. And this was, 
you know, now, I, as I said, I'm much softer about it now than I used to be. But when you're a bereaved parent, you don't want something skirting over the issue or lightening the issue or saying something that, you know, and I talk about examples in the book of people trying to be comforting. And people are one, people want to help. Yeah. And as I said in the book, these are kind, loving, giving people, whatever terms I used. They want to help. They know, or they don't know. They should know. There's nothing you can do to help except listen. Now, maybe another bereaved parent will have another. Of course, you can bring me dinner. You can take me to the dentist. You can take my child to school. There's all kinds of that stuff, tasks that can be done for for a parent that is bereaved. Mm -hmm. And of course, as time goes on, very short amount of time goes on, those things go away and you're left to yourself. And those around you, my sister Nancy, the one who died, uh, um, was my rock, my older sister. And my other siblings were also extremely helpful and Mm -hmm. still are to this day. Mm -hmm. They still understand that 27 years later, I've still lost a child. Right. And that doesn't go away. Now, that doesn't mean I go around talking about it every day or whatever. They, But they're sensitive to that. They they celebrate her birthday. They, you know, post pictures. They, they yeah. understand, you know. And not everybody has to do that. I mean, I don't do that with my friend. You know, all my friends have lost kids. I forget and say, oh, yeah, this is the anniversary of so-and-so's son's death or something. And I, you know, I mean, I'm not all there all the time. I'm just a typical you know, forgetful. Well, person who's just trying to make yeah. their way through the world. Yeah. As well, that's so, the th- another thing. He said people are kind and yeah. people are wonderful, and also yeah. everyone's kind of fucking confused and and, and struggling with yeah. all the news in the world, like yeah. you said before, and everything else. And they people can care, but sometimes it's just. But it's sometimes life. it's just you, and and you don't you don't. I didn't expect people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't an expectation from me for people to. Pay attention to me all the time. In fact, you don't want people around a lot of the time. Mm. Or it's just what I'm saying is that there are things that are not helpful in the beginning. Sure. You know, and, um, you know, somebody saying, which I, I say in the book is my, the one I hated the most, which is, well, there's always a reason for everything. Okay, maybe there was a reason that my 11-year-old daughter had to suffer with a horrible disease and die suddenly of meningitis in the hospital. Maybe there was a reason. But who the fuck cares right now? And... Of course, I don't say that. Of course, I never would say that. And yep. now I'm being very honest. Mm. But but if you have a friend who loses a child of any age, and by the way, not everybody said that. 
you know, people are, and I also knew even then that people were trying to come up with something that would be of comfort. There were others that are just no-goes, other things that people say. So I gave them a pass, obviously. Yeah, sure. Um, Listen, I can't, I'm not the most sensitive person to everything everybody says to me. You know, I, 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 I nobody is. Right. Anyway, I don't want to go off on that tangent. No, but I think anymore, it's a really important but, thing to talk about for a couple of reasons. Because uh, people are generally so uncomfortable with the notion of death, particularly when it's children. such a horrifying yeah. uh, scenario that... Um, I mean, I'm sure you experience people uh, being avoidant uh, and and all that kind of thing, which is like, at least I imagine, an additional, uh, not horror, because the horror is, you know, the death, but an additional um, sort of feeling like the world is shrinking. It's a realization that, uh, yes, and it's very tough. You lose friends, but you also gain friends. There are people in your life that will, if it ever, God forbid, but anyone knows who's had any kind of loss. Um, people, there, the, there are people who just can't handle it for, for any length of time. Or people, you know, uh, you have people who come up I- any kind of loss, even mm. divorce or, you know, any losing a pet, you know, whatever it financial, is, financial, uh, financial, you know, people have say, um, how are you? Just the simple, how are you? And maybe it's three weeks later, six months later, a year later, and they expect you to say fine. <laughs> right. Or I'm good. Or I'm much better. Thank you. Right. That's what they want to hear. If you dare, if you're not okay, and this is not everybody, again. Of course. If you dare to say, I'm I'm having a really tough time, or however you would say that. Mm -hmm. Things are not good. I'm just struggling like hell. Their eyes glaze over, and it's like, gee, it was really nice to see you. They want to get away. They want to get away. That hurts. Yeah. Again, this part of you that says, I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm a downer. You know, losing Jesse and for bereaved parents, you're a downer for years. And no one feels that downer more than you. Oh, so it's. Kind of an insult, really. Uh, you understand why people do it, but then I imagine there's the anger that results from that. Yeah, there's some anger. I think what saved me, what was a complete and total blessing for me, was writing those songs. And having that album, and having, and I would suggest this to any bereaved parent, when it's time, when you can... And I always said to people who came up to me and said, oh, my God, I could never have bereaved parents who would come up and say, I could never have done this, uh, something like you did. I said, 
planting a garden, naming a tree, volunteering at the school, Mm -hmm. watching over your neighbor's kids. If you do it internally in your child's name, Mm -hmm. it's just as important. Right. As writing an album, getting it out there, because bereaved parents would come up to me and I couldn't, you know, I, I, I can't do anything like that. I'm not creative. You don't have to. Right. It doesn't but have you, to be that thing. It doesn't have to. It's all equal. Yeah. In the big scheme of things, Jesse believed this and she used to state it. She used to believe that a rock was as important as a, a rabbit or a what? She believed that everything was of equal value. Now mm. we could debate that, but in a young kid's mind, I think that's pretty profound. Absolutely. You know, so so the circumstance, and I won't, you know, of course we have human value and all that, but I'm talking about Actions, right? The actions, yeah. the value of what I did as compared to somebody donating $500 or building a park bench with somebody, their child's name on it, mm-hmm. or planting a garden in their child's name. And I'm totally serious about this. Of course. I couldn't yeah. be more serious. Yeah. Baking cookies. It doesn't even have to be, oh, I'm doing this in so-and-so's name. It's you know It's that's you true. know. I'm baking cookies for the first grade class at the Montessori school in my child's name. Mm-hmm. Every week, they get a batch of cookies for me until a certain point. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. Yeah, because it's a way to process and... It's just I'm doing it in my child's name. Yeah. I'm being of service in my child's name. I happen to be a songwriter. I happen to have musicians, great musicians who are good friends of mine. I happen to have connections I didn't even know about, you know. I happen to tap into something I don't even know that made this album happen. And somewhere between heaven and earth. And it came out on a worldwide basis. I mean, I had people from, I've had people from every continent on earth. Mm -hmm. And many, many, many different countries of those continents on earth Mm -hmm. contact me. South America, China, all over your everywhere australia of course i've been there now can i mean you name it saskatchewan to sydney to hong kong to new delhi to cape town yeah about that album i didn't do it i wrote the songs i recorded them but i didn't do that Right. But that, so that's my legacy on one hand. It's also a very simple act that is equal in value to, to anything anyone does in the name of their, their child. child. And, and also, uh, whatever resource someone has, your resource, uh, songwriting, uh, performing, yeah. if someone, say, has tremendous financial means and they're able to build a wing. Of a hospital. Absolutely. Or even start a food drive. Anything. anything, Whatever someone's good at, if they can lend that 
Exactly. To, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And people do. And people have, you know. Uh, my my ex-husband and I, you know, donated money from the Jesse Bullens Crew Foundation to build the the Jesse Bullens Crew building at the 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 Breakwater School in Portland, Maine, private school. You know, I mean, we we had the resources, he had the resources. You know, and we had the foundation fr- that started with somewhere between heaven and earth and mm-hmm. it got much bigger than that. Um so yeah, you do what you can. But that uh uh Jesse's death just to put a Unless you have something else to no, say no, about please. it. No, no, please. I want you to continue to your thought, and then I have it. something else after that yeah. in mind. But I, yeah, no, just is... to put a point on that yeah. is that album, which I started to say, saved my life again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like I say Nashville saved my musical soul. That's the line I use when I went there and they accepted me and I... I did the songwriting and I got some success and I met all these people who became my, I live there now, became my uh, grounding point Mm -hmm. Um, somewhere between heaven and earth uh, made me an artist again. Almost accidentally because you weren't thinking about it. You weren't planning it. Probably you, you, not almost. Actually, yeah. I mean, uh, well, I guess it doesn't matter what the. Yeah, I didn't plan unconsciously. It. Maybe. Unconsciously, I didn't plan it. Yeah, which is different than everything before. Listen, when Danny Goldberg said to me, "Well, you got to make another album," you know, you signed a two-album deal, <laughs> and I went, I literally went, "What?" <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Because that album was was so profound to me was so was the thing i was singing those songs for a reason even when i did what i call civilian gigs yeah because there were jesse gigs and there were civilian gigs the jesse gigs were all what i told you about Mm -hmm. but the civilian gigs were playing at the you know at humphrey's opening for Emmy Lou Harris, you know, yeah. Humphreys in San Diego or playing at the, you know, Hard Rock Cafe, not Hard Rock, House of Blues. Sure. In with Emmy Lou or doing one of my or playing my own set in Cambridge at the House of Blues, you know, oh, yeah, it was there. Yeah. You know, those were civilian gigs. The Jesse gigs were all of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I. I honestly, it never crossed my mind that I would be doing anything else ever again, <laughs> one more time. And so when he said, you got to do another album, I went, I, I, I literally was like, are you kidding me? I don't, ha- I, I haven't been writing songs, any more songs. You know, I've been singing anything. You know, I, I mean, I, how, how do I get my brain out of that mm. to being an artist? Without that purpose. Right. Like all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute. You want me to be Cindy Bullens with an album that's not somewhere between heaven and earth, that isn't about the death of my child, that's just me singing a bunch of songs on a record and then on tour (laughs) as Cindy Bullens? I I couldn't wrap my head around it. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you this little one little story that yeah. got me in, into it. 
So I was living in Portland, Maine. I, Dan and I were divorced. Um, it was 2000, 2000. Uh, the record came out in 2001, so it was probably somewhere in early 2000 or 2001. And I guess, yeah, it was 2000. Anyway, again, I had my little studio set up in my condo in Portland. And I like with Send Me an Angel, mm-hmm. which I sat down and basically prayed to what we don't know, but just said, okay, what do you got? I, I'm open. Uh, I did the same thing because I really didn't have a clue. I panicked. Mm-hmm. I don't have any other songs. You know. What if that was it? Uh, what if that was it? What if I could never write a song again? I mean, writing those songs, that's a whole nother conversation. How those songs came through me, how they, how, you know, what I felt when I was writing those 10 songs of somewhere between heaven and earth. It's in, it's in the book. I keep saying that because that's where the, everything is now is yeah. all the information is in the book. And I sat down with my guitar and I said, okay, Jesse. This time I directed it to her personally. And I said, give me one song. One more song. Because I knew she had given me those others. And and I'll take it from there. And I wrote... Um, the right kind of goodbye. And it was a song about her and about how we didn't have the chance to say the right kind of goodbye. Hmm. Now you wouldn't know it was about her. It wasn't directly, you know, it was again, another universal song could have been a lost relationship or, you know, know. whatever, but I knew, and I knew where it came came from. Mm Mm-hmm. And I did. I took it from there. I wrote some new songs. I plucked out a couple of old starts of songs mm-hmm. that I had never finished and redid them and whatever and came out with my album Neverland, mm. um, which the great Ray Kennedy co-produced with me, who co-produced three albums plus Walking Through This World. The, the one that's going to come out yeah. this year. And um, uh, Emmy Lou sings on this album. Uh, she sings on Send Me an Angel. Okay. Yeah. Emmy Lou Harris on my Neverland album sings on Send Me an Angel. Uh, Steve Earle sings on it. Um, John Hyatt sings on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great, it's another good album. Another good bunch of folks. <laughs> Named a lot of good bunch of folks. Yeah, I Bunches. can I can name drop if I well, I mean, yeah. for, for like again for a reason. These are folks that work with you for a reason. It's not like charity. It's not like they just go, oh, who's playing in there? I'll go sing with yeah, them. No. Uh, yeah, no. And, and back to that, back to the seventies, yeah. back to the start and everything. And I want to get to the recovery uh, stuff, yeah. but I feel that this all plays into it uh-huh. because the time that you landed in L.A. Um, and the crew that you kind of almost immediately were either mixed up with or connected with. We're kind of a high-flying bunch. Yes. And uh, you took to the 
accoutrement of the, the milieu <laughs> uh, rather easily, would you say? Would you, if you're talking about my uh, my dive into drugs and alcohol, uh, yes. Um, but quite young as well. That's the other yeah. Thing. I mean, I I had. My parents were both heavy drinkers. I'll use that word, even though I use another word in my book. And there was alcohol around everywhere all the time. It was a staple, and and it was a drag, to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. And so I swore I would never drink. My mother was an obnoxious drunk. Good, Good people. They were good people. They were kind people. They weren't mean people. They took in strays. You know, they... They were good people. But booze can... But they liked to party. Yeah. And uh, we were just real straight across middle class. We had nothing extra, but we weren't starving. And my dad was a salesman. My mother was a housewife. Um, But my mother was extremely charismatic. And my father was too, although he was beaten down by World War II and and wounded and, and... partially disabled from his wounds but uh, and that was that generation where you didn't talk about it oh right and he was that guy who didn't talk about it but they were both very good looking very charismatic had lots of friends they loved to party and they were good people um five kids and um uh but so i swore i'd never drink because i didn't not want to go into that miasma of alcohol and fight fighting and yeah falling down and it didn't attract me in the least so my my first foray was when i was about 14 i was 14 and my first foray was i had a couple of friends i was a freshman in high school i think and they were freshmen in college and mm-hmm. i had met them because we used to play music or whatever. And they introduced me to hashish was my first thing. Mm -hmm. And they came home on a break. And then I, of course, went to pot. So I smoked pot in high school. Uh, A few years later, I was a little afraid of LSD because I felt like I was insane anyway. And that was (laughs) partially because of the dysphoria and everything else. And also that... I sent. I, I feel like the sense of I got to keep a little bit of this uh, contained. They can't know all about me. Uh, I got to exactly. be in control. It was the control. Yeah, I have to keep in control, which yeah. is another reason why I didn't like drinking. Mm. Didn't want to drink. Sure, I did not want to lose control over what little going I had, and uh, so I didn't drink in high school. My friends did. I didn't. I smoked pot. I. St- did a little bit of acid. I did some speed, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff. <laughs> um, I was a rebel in high school. I got in lots of trouble. I ran away at 15 years old to New York City and mm-hmm. never to return and got caught by the New York City police and my mother and dragged back and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was a rebel. I definitely was, you know. I, I was angry, really angry. And uh, I was a boy. I was a boy. Yeah. That was it. And I was all my girl. I had a lot of girlfriends. We called ourselves the mafia. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like nine girls, but I was the boy. And not everybody knew. We were all the misfits, the creative, 
hippie misfits, you know, and uh, the ones who all got in trouble. Smart as hell. All sure. these kids were smart as hell, and I'm friends with them. Some, some of them, some of them are gone, and most of them are around. And I'm still friends, at least on Facebook. The good thing about Facebook, mm. and I have seen some of them in recent years. And but I was the guy, you know, and they knew it. They we I even made out with you know them, and you know I was like the pretend guy. Yeah, you know? sure. And they were safe with me, and. Um, uh, and I was the rock and roller, you know, I was always playing music in high school and having bands and lip syncing the mm-hmm. Rolling Stones and whatever. And, um, anyway, and I was voted best dancer and class nonconformist in my senior year. That's, those were my <laughs> superlatives. And, uh, uh, um, so... I did do those drugs and... In high school, and then when I moved to New York and to go to acting school, and um, I started drinking a little wine, but I really didn't. It wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. Even the pot and stuff wasn't a habitual issue. It just was there. Mm-hmm. I really don't think I became uh, a drug addict, which I became. Let's put it this way. I had, for the 10 years between the time I started using pot, marijuana, to the time I came into recovery, there was a period of two and a half years. Mm -hmm. All the rest of it, I didn't, I could stop. I could do, you know, didn't need to do anything. Forget about it. No, there it is again. Not an issue. Um. Didn't have money, didn't have money, didn't pay for it. I didn't, and I didn't drink. But I did smoke grass and do some extra stuff, I, you know, mescaline. I didn't do a lot of that. You mm-hmm. know, I really didn't. I, I just mainly smoked pot, but dabbled in other stuff until I got to L.A. and started move, working with Bob Crew. And when I started working with Bob Crew, he was a true alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Even... You know, late stage, even when I got to him. Okay, yeah. When I say late stage, I don't mean he was dying of cirrhosis or anything. I mean, he was just full-blown. As you mentioned in the book, starting the day with swigging some vodka. Yeah, yeah, right off the kitchen counter and stuff like that. And uh, he did a lot of coke, Hmm. cocaine. And I had tried cocaine once, like at some point when I was in New York, from a friend and thought, no, that's not, makes my throat numb. It makes my heart race. I don't like it. So that was it for me, I thought. And then, uh, so Bob just, everything was about drugs and alcohol. And so I, of course, started um, snorting cocaine. And really, so this period of time I'm talking about, so it was two and a half years from the time I started working with Bob to when I got sober, not quite. And in those two and a half years was my progression of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I don't really count the stuff before because it wasn't an issue. Right. None of my other sig- siblings are alcoholics and mm-hmm. they all 
dabbled but didn't get it. So maybe, maybe not. Maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I wouldn't have. I don't know. But I'm the one who got the gene or whatever. <laughs> and um, and is that crossing the line point, right? Yeah. The, well, I can only speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I really can because I think there are different ways of becoming an alcoholic. My mother-in-law, Dan's mother, Mabel Crew, never had a drink until her husband died at 60 or something, Mm -hmm. became an alcoholic and got sober at 76 years old. Wow. You know, so who knows what the the trajectory uh, is or anything else. Some people, you know, it happens slowly over time. They can go for years. My parents never got sober. Mm -hmm. They lived, you know, until they died in their 80s, you know. And they cut back when they were older my dad had alzheimer's and you know then he was only given a glass of wine every day you know something like that whatever it's i don't know for everyone so it's, for me uh, yeah i was okay in terms of control and not doing it and stopping and starting whatever until i got with bob crew and i there was i'm i suppose a line in which i crossed but it was with the drugs mm-hmm. and then came the alcohol because yeah. I only drank. I'm talking alcoholically for two years, mm-hmm. if that. Mm-hmm. If that. Yeah. The drugs definitely, the cocaine started right away when I got out here with Bob Crew, pretty much right away. And that I just, for some reason, just woof, just took me. Well, I mean,. Count uh, factoring in the dysphoria, the self-esteem stuff, yeah. and then you got something that makes you go, "Hey, yeah, I'm all right." You yeah, know, I'm okay. Yeah, I, I, this is great. Oh, I can talk at the party. I yeah, got no yeah, problems. Yeah. Maybe the next day I won't feel so yep. good, but there's yep. a lot more the next day because yep. Bob's got a big pile of it. That's right, and I do think that all my lack of self-esteem, that who am I now? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Am I gay? Am I straight? Because there was no in between back then. Don't forget. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I guess people were bisexual, but secretly, usually. Yeah, right? it was yeah. like it was something about the stigma. Or something. Who knows what? I mean, of course they were. I'm just saying the term terms were not, and even term, the understanding. Like Anthony yeah. Perkins got uh, what do you, that? Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it. That terrible therapy where they um, conversion. Thank you. They, Anthony Perkins got uh, conversion therapy by choice in 1974. Ugh. It didn't work because it doesn't. No, but, no, it doesn't. But that just as an example yeah. of how. Yeah, no, they, no, nobody knew anything about anything. I mean, back in those days, of course, because they were so drug-filled in the rock and roll business, people did stuff with anybody they wanted to. You know, all the big big stars did whatever. Not all. I shouldn't categorize them like that. Whoever did, did. Yeah. You know, with both men and women. And, you know, of course, we were going back to David Bowie and Mick Jagger and who, you know, who were they? What were they? How were they? You know, mm-hmm. Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, it's like, you <laughs> yeah. know, let's, let's mix it up, you know. And, and also I, in, a, in the rarefied air of Bel Air or wherever the rock stars lived, there's a certain largesse that maybe is not present in the suburbs right, and other areas. Right, right, We were creative people. We were in the show business. You know, you could do more than you could po- probably do outside of that and get away with it. Um, I didn't have... I shouldn't say I didn't have any say. I had so, I was closed off. Mm -hmm. 
a couple, now it wasn't until I got in, with the drugs I was completely closed off, and up until that point, into my 20s, I just, I mean, I would cuddle or, you know, kiss or something with somebody, but nobody got near me, mm. except for some sexual abuse that I had. I only talk about one of the things in the book, but there were a couple other things. And not with my family. Right. It's, Thank it's, God. It's when you were out not in my LA family, and, but yeah. yeah. And uh, um, so, but I, I just closed off my body. Mm-hmm. Even people were attracted to me. They wanted to do stuff with. I mean, believe me, I got hit on more times than a drum. <laughs> well, I remember one memorable but, uh, example of that would be Faye Dunaway and Peter Wolf. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, inquiring if you would yeah, like to. Yeah, uh, you know, them. I, I struggled. I struggled with whether to put that in or not because Faye Dunaway is still alive. Not that she'd care or no, read my book or anything. But um, but I think it's a great one because also uh, our shared Massachusetts history, yeah. the Wolfa Goofa, yeah, Peter Wolf uh, from BCN. <laughs> I think it ties yeah. everything together yeah. nicely. So uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, that you want me to tell that story? Or oh yeah, to, I mean it's, yeah, it's only alluded to right in the book, but please. <laughs> well, it, it, I'm not going to tell any more than was in the no, book. I know, probably, I know, I know. But um, and and nothing really was more that was in the book. And that wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary. Yeah, I, I and uh, what we're talking time. about is I was in I was living in California, but in 1975, I was in Massachusetts visiting my parents in the suburbs. And Earl McGrath, who was a wonderful man, who was the head of Rolling Stones Records, and he was an art connoisseur and a collector and had many other hats. And I had met Earl through Jerry Wexler, who was the, uh, uh, who kind of discovered or produced Aretha Frank. He was half of uh, Atlantic Records with Ahmet Erdogan. He yeah. founded Atlantic Records and he produced Aretha Franklin and. Um, Ray Charles and uh, you know the Little Rascals. I think he did. I think so. Yeah. I I I, I mean I any anyway was famous, and an extremely uh, just an incredible figure in the music business. And I had met Jerry. Jerry Wexler's a thread through through my story. Jerry through Bob Crew and uh, Jerry introduced me to Earl McGrath at one point. And Earl was married, but he. I don't, again, for a reason, as I'll, I'm going to use your thing, he was, he never, there was nothing sexual about it. He just liked me. Yeah. And again, I'll say, I don't know why, but he liked me. And uh, he was the one who brought later, this is after this story, later in 1979, brought Mick Jagger to see me at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Um but here we are in 1975, and Earl, and I, you know, this was a, without cell phones. As I was writing this book, I'm thinking, how did I connect with these people? There was no email. There were no cell phones. How did Earl know I was at my parents' house, or yeah. how did I get a hold of Earl, or how, what, how did we, we must have had to plan these things. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, Earl was in Boston with the Rolling Stones, and they were playing the Boston Garden. And I was invited to the show to be Earl's guest with Jerry Greenberg, who was the head of Atlantic Records at that time, and Faye Dunaway. So um, we were in the limo 
going. I I don't even remember now what I what. It's all in my journal, so I know what what's in my book yeah. is the right thing. But right at this moment, um, I think we were going to the hotel from the show um, in Boston, and we were going to the Rolling Stones suite. Uh, at the Sheraton, whatever it was in Boston. So we're up in the hotel suite and I, you know, meeting the Rolling Stones and, and uh, I have a fun little vignette about the Rolling Stones in my book, which I'll, I'll save about mm. their first American appearance ever in Lynn, Massachusetts, which I was at when I was 15 years old, but we'll, you'll have to read That's about that. Book. That's, That's in the book. That's in the book. So, um, Mick Jagger figures into my my book a lot. In fact, he's in the first line of the first chapter. But anyway, um, so you're at the suite. I'm at the suite, and I'm standing there with everybody else. The record company. There weren't a lot of people in there. I don't know, thirty people, twenty people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, in a hotel suite, how many people are in there? Right. And uh, with the Stones, so it was record company people, maybe some press. I don't know. And probably not press. But anyway, uh, so far, suddenly I get this. Faye, in the limousine, Faye was like leaning up against me and talking to me and doing all, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I did. I, I'm very, now, you know, if people are watching this, I'm putting my hand over my head like, I'm clueless when it comes to being flirted <laughs> at just, I don't get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but so I must've, she must've been flirting really hard for me to understand that she was flirting with me. <laughs> so somewhere in the night in the, in the, the suite, she grabs me and pulls me into the bedroom. And I can't remember if Peter was, was in there already or whether he came in and I was sitting as I remember on the edge of the bed and they were on leaning against the desk or whatever it was at the Mm -hmm. foot of the bed trying to convince me to come home with them yeah and I there were no friggin way was I going to do that (laughs) Would this be because you were still closed off? Oh, and... my God, yes. I was, mm-hmm. you know, in my early 20s, well, I guess mid-20s by this time, but I just didn't allow it. It wasn't going to happen. I I didn't want anybody to see me. The dysphoria mm-hmm. of, that I did have, which I never, of course, we never knew that word. I never knew that word until I was starting to transition, right. you know. So I just was so uncomfortable with my naked body because it wasn't mine. Right. Right. I mean, I had a good body, you know? Yeah. But it wasn't mine. Yeah. My breasts were not supposed to be there, you know, and I didn't have other things that I was supposed to have. So um, anyway, they spent quite a time (laughs) trying to convince me to come home and finally i said no i i i'm not i can't i'm sorry i can't and then i was so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. that i got up and i said to earth er, earth uh, earl mcgrath who was in the other room i said i gotta go home 
I got to go home and I have to leave. And he's like, what are you leaving for? You know? Yeah. Now, Earth had no, I, Earth, That's how do okay. I say that? Earl McGrath had no inclination to be sexual with me, can, never came on to me, never, not a hint, not a whiff, not a nothing. Yeah. Thank you, God. You know, he was just a friend and yeah. he liked me and I liked him. And he yeah. was, he was kind of a guide through some of these you know, back backstage places in both sure. art and music. And he and he taught me some stuff about the music business and so on. And uh and I said, I gotta go, I gotta go. I had my own car, it was parked somewhere. And and I left. And I I as you know, it's in the book, I had to laugh at myself. I it just it was the irony. To me, now maybe it's only funny to me, but the irony of being hit on in the hotel suite of the Rolling Stones <laughs> by yeah. Faye Dunaway and Peter Wolf, and then getting in my car and driving to Topsfield, Massachusetts, where my parents had moved, and I spent the last two years of my high school years there, into my old room bedroom yeah you know yeah. that was painted this ugly fluorescent green or something from some time i had in high school where a psychedelic thing where yeah. i wanted to paint my room green it was just the irony of that i really did i thought you you even at that age at 24 or whatever i was saying what a life you know yeah. what what is what about you know just <laughs> i think it might have been close to that point when I said, oh, yeah, my life is a cosmic rock star, mm -hmm. you know. Well, and to when you went into recovery, it's uh, remarkable for a, a number of reasons, one of which you were very young, and that wasn't really the done thing in rock and roll. Uh, I talked to Michael Dubar about that, and he said he was a bit of a pariah in 1980. So this uh, is, in rock and roll terms, eons Yeah. Uh, before that. Uh, but you had some really terrific support around you that saw that you might go Have the wrong problem. direction well and that and you were young enough that yeah if you didn't sort of address it yeah you could have been i went really downhill really fast so not only did i snort cocaine but i started shooting it and that was the real red neon sign you're going to die yeah and it all happened really quickly. I really did start drinking. I know I never drank hard alcohol or rarely drank hard alcohol. You know, I once in a blue moon had tequila or a, you know, screwdriver or something like that. I never drank whiskey, never drank mm -hmm. bourbon, never drank anything. And then to this day, I've never had it. Never. And maybe I've had a sip before I got sober somewhere along the line and said, oh, not that, you know, nothing brown. My mother drank uh, scotch. Oh, there, yeah. I cannot stand the smell of it to this day. So anyway, I never drank anything brown. All I drank was clear <laughs> or wine, which mm -hmm. was my big thing, and once in a while beer. Mm -hmm. But wine, red wine, was my drink of choice. And um, you can get pretty drunk with red wine. Yes. <laughs> and um, so I started drinking a lot of wine 
and uh, around the time when my cocaine use started to build up. And then when I talk about going over the line, when I, I was half drunk, and I say half drunk because I wasn't falling down, and I didn't really get falling down drunk all that often. But I was had drunk enough this one particular night where this friend or this person I was working with or was an acquaintance of mine offered to shoot up Coke. And I didn't have the defenses to say no. And I was shocked at myself. It was like two two entities going, what are you talking about? You know, what are you saying? Right. You're going to shoot cocaine? You know, one of the entities is, you know, part of me is saying, are you out of your fucking mind? And the other one's saying, ah, what the fuck? Yeah. So I did. And that was the beginning of two months, two and a half months of the lowest point because I loved it. And it's expensive. It was expensive, but my, I did, I listen that, yeah, it's expensive. And I started doing things that I wouldn't do as a normal human being to get it. Sure. And some of that, Truth be told, which I don't write about in the book, is that I ended up sleeping with the friend who was getting it mm-hmm. and shooting, I was shoot, shooting up with. So that's the low point for me because I didn't sleep with anybody. I didn't like her. I mean, I, I take that back. I, I didn't, wasn't attracted to her. Sure. Um, I didn't particularly like her either, but... <laughs> It was, you know, means to an end. It, it, it was a means to an end, and I and that you know what happens in recovery or when you're when you're going down that. And I was lucky, like I say, because it all happened very quickly, and it wasn't long and drawn out. I was able to view and see because I had started visiting AA rooms with Bob Crew before. I had even started shooting up cocaine. Right. The seed had been planted in me, even though I wasn't a drug addict, I wasn't an alcoholic in my own mind. I was visiting recovery rooms before that started happening. Again, we can thank some kind our of lucky divine stars. Yeah. Yes. But also, especially back then, even knowing. That that existed, that some kind of recovery. Oh, some yeah. Kind of I re- mean, I didn't know. I was I, I found AA in a phone book when Bob Crew was getting so bad that I couldn't I couldn't handle it. I because I was his caretaker, basically. Mm-hmm. And I I couldn't handle it. It was so bad. And I got the phone book out of the the, the cupboard in his kitchen. And I somewhere, some top maybe it was TV, maybe it was a movie, maybe it was something that Alcoholics Anonymous certainly wasn't my parents. Somewhere I had heard the term, I don't know where, and I looked it up and I called them. And I took Bob to his first AA meeting, mm-hmm. begrudgingly. <laughs> he didn't get sober then, but it started his path. Yeah. And, and it's so a process I, too for anyone listening process, that might be struggling. Right. And yeah. and uh, he didn't get sober right away and it started his process and I um, would take him to his AA meetings. And then his brother came out, Dan, that's a whole nother story, who later on became my husband. Again, you have to read to get all the inter- intricacies of how this all is woven together. Yeah. But, um, and, and then, uh, so 
luckily, um, that thought about there's something wrong with you. I'm saying to myself, there's something wrong with me. You know, what are you doing? You know, as I'm shooting up, um, you know, you're, you're, I, I can, can remember sitting on the side of my bed one day saying, um, you're on your way up. You're not on your way down. Cause I had started doing some things. It was before I met Elton and all that singing on people's albums and the Dr. John thing had already happened and some other stuff. And I knew that I was in trouble and I confided in a woman in AA who had long-term sobriety, who had become a friend of Bob's and, um, that I was doing what I was doing. And she gave me the exact words and process to go to this person who was, I was shooting up with cause I, I didn't do it by myself and end it. Mm-hmm. And I did exactly as she told me. And that ended the shooting up. It didn't end the snorting. Then right after I stopped shooting up cocaine, I met Elton John mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, there's that neon sign. Now, again, I didn't, uh, that I did had done the right thing. Um, but it wasn't until, of course I went on the road with Elton. Um, and I continued to do a lot of cocaine. I continued to drink. It got worse. The progression got worse. I'm not going to tell some of the stories in the book um, about being on the road. And uh, I don't call anybody out except myself. But And uh, not to uh, yeah. suggest anyone in particular, but especially because it was the mid-70s. And it was, you know, the highest uh, echelon. Yeah, it yeah. was everywhere, right? It was everywhere. Yeah. It was everywhere. And um, I found my people on the road to do it with. And, um, and I was uh, right up there on top looking for it, Yeah, you know, and, um, it progressed over the time I was with Elton, my disease and I'll cut to the chase two months after. I'm not going to tell that story, uh, that you're thinking of. Oh, I know. It's in the uh, book. Yeah. It's in the book. It's in the book. After I got off the road, uh, with Elton, which was September of 1976. Uh, I knew I had a problem. And I tried to stop myself, mm-hmm. both drugs and alcohol. I was still visiting the AA rooms with Bob and Luann, who was the woman I talked about, and Dan Crew, his brother, who is now also visiting the rooms. And by the way, just to, yeah. for anyone listening... Uh, who might have this misapprehension, even if you're not sober, you can go. Oh, absolutely. So, I think some people think, um, well, I, I can't because I'm still you or whatever. No, 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 no. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous are is open. Uh, they do have closed meetings, which means you, you have to be a sober alcoholic to go. But sure. those are rare. Oh, okay. I mean, 90% of all AA meetings are open meetings. Yeah. And all you have to do is look and see if it says open there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I shouldn't say 90, 75%. I don't know. What sure, a good number. Uh, a good number. Uh, most of them. of them. Yeah. And um, 
uh, and you don't have to be sober. And of course, many people come in and out their entire lives. They get sober, they go out, they get, that's not the preferred way to do it. Actually having consecutive days of sobriety is a good thing. I have, as we speak and sit here today, 46 and a half years of sobriety. That's one day at a time mm-hmm. without a drink or a drug. And, but you know, illicit drug. Uh, right. Aspirin is okay. But, yeah. Uh, no, yeah exactly. uh, but, uh, and uh, testosterone, obviously, right. anything prescribed. Right. Um, and obviously, from the things we've discussed, that must have been tested throughout your life. The resolve. You mean, uh, I, I'm not sure I understand. Oh, so, uh, you know, well, given the, the the tragedy that you endured. Uh, oh, you mean uh, going forward after I get yes, sober? after getting yeah. sober, you know, then it, yeah. it becomes a fact of life that you're sober sure. and you don't drink. But uh, I'm imagine, I or rather I do imagine that yeah. there's points in life, especially like the ones we discussed, yes. where y- y- all kinds of things go into your head. Yes. So I did get sober in November of 1976. And it wasn't. It was difficult even then to stay. The first two and a half years of my sobriety were very difficult because I was still on the road. My career was popping. Yeah. You know, I had solo albums out. I was on American Bandstand and and touring around the country. And you know, I had a hit record and you know so on and so forth. Sang on the Grease movie soundtrack yeah. before I had my own records out. There was not that much cocaine going around the RSO organization, though. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. Less than or anyone Casablanca think. or anything oh, else. Oh no, Casablanca. My God, it was like milk and cookies. Yes, exactly. So I was tested a lot in the music business, not emotionally, but just physically, logistically, it was all around me and I was newly sober. So that actually, honestly, was the most trying time in terms of proximity and Seeing other people, you doing know, just and... you know, uh, sensitivity to it. Um, there's a word I'm looking for. I'm not coming up with, but anyway, that that was a very trying time. The first two and a half years until I really got it, because I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. I knew I was a drug addict. I had tracks in my arms. You know, I had you know, stories to tell, I the behavior that I had. But because I only drank red wine and um, an occasional beer, I really had a hard time because my idea of an alcoholic was my parents and their friends and, of course, all the stereotypical stuff of alcoholism, you know, falling down the stairs, you know, going, getting, going to jail, all the things I didn't have. Right. And it took me about 11 months, and there's a term in the big book where it says we concede to our innermost self. So I'm going to say, until I conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, because I finally was clear enough to be able to look back and see my behavior, drinking behavior, Mm -hmm. of the... The things I did drinking, including deciding to shoot up cocaine when I had been drinking that night, but also the compulsion, which I didn't believe I had until I had the clarity to look back and note certain occasions 
which became more and more and more frequent, obviously, mm. as the progression of the disease. Sure. Even though I only drank wine, let's put it that way, I can see myself saying, no, no, not going to have any tonight. No, no, not and to myself. Yeah. And then driving into the liquor store or the Ralph's and getting a bottle of wine. Yeah. Having no control over my actions. Yeah. But they were subtle in that way that I could cloud them over in my own mind. Yeah. They weren't subtle. If you're talking to another sober alcoholic, they're like, hello, you know. Even the bit where it's on your mind and you're saying, nope, yeah. no, no, won't do that. Yeah, won't yeah. Won't do that. Yeah. yeah, that's and that's going on all day. Yes. So I finally was able to see those moments, those circumstances and said, okay, I get it. I'm an alcoholic. I'm not like my mother. I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not like Bob Crew. But I have a, had, because I was sober now, a compulsion to drink alcohol. And I was a drug addict. And in my mind, and this is going into AA stuff or recovery stuff, some people like to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Alcoholism does not equal drug addiction or and I shouldn't say equal but is not you know some some meetings I don't know about out here anymore I got sober here but have moved at 5 years sober but uh and have been to many meetings around the world some meetings say we don't talk about drugs in this meeting I never went for that and being the contrarian that I am <laughs> I never adhered to that even if they said it uh-huh. I'm sorry if I was talking, if I was sharing. Um, I don't adhere to that. And it's your story, right? I am sharing. a drug addict and an alcoholic, and drugs led me to drinking, and drinking will lead me to drugs. If I go to either one first, they will lead me to the other. They are of equal value, and I talk about both because they're both in my story. Right. And don't like it? can't kick me out <laughs> you know and uh uh and i believe that to this Bob day Ezrin couldn't kick you out no nope. <laughs> nobody's gonna kick me out what i grew up with in aa in the mid 1970s was this very hardcore you don't need anything you do nothing even therapy was frowned upon when really? i got sober wow it was pretty hardcore um i don't uh, adhere to any uh, or 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 condone any of that now. I mean, I've been sober for for almost forty seven years. You know, I'm yeah. One day at a time, and not to say that it couldn't happen. If I do my program, I'm I'm okay. One and, day at a time, and that's part of it, right? Knowing that it could strike back or sure. show up Absolutely. at any moment. Because when have, it's you, when sorry to interrupt, but it's that thing of anyone who thinks I got that licked. Oh, um, no, uh, uh, yeah. no, I have to pay attention. I have to pay attention to my behavior. I have to pay attention. I have to be vigilant, as mm -hmm. they say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. Right. So um, I can't, and I have, I have floated away at times, not floated, that's a bad, bad analogy. I have drifted away from... The program itself, the steps, the the recovery mm -hmm. of of 
AA at times, especially after Jesse died in certain circumstances where I haven't worked the program um, or the steps or been in community as much as I should have been. I mean, we try not to use shoulda, coulda, woulda, but I'll say it. We should, I should have been closer, but because of my grief, because my anger, because, you know, and you think, oh, well, that's the time to get closer. But even in AA, I couldn't talk about my daughter dying all the time. Sure. Not because somebody said you need to shut up about that, but because I knew or I felt, I should say, that it was redundant to them. It was like, I mean, I could hear people in my head saying, get over it. There were people who said you need to get over it. Not so much, and I'm not going to say whether they were in AA or not, but the, these are the things that start happening two, three, four years down the down the road. Mm-hmm. This other layer of yeah, I'll problems. Tell, I'll t- I tell people to this day, it took me nine years to even breathe. It took me nine years after Jesse's death, even with the album, even with touring, even with all the good things that happened, all the miracles that happened, all the, 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 the expansion that happened in my life, you know, all of that. It took me nine years to understand, and maybe 10 years, that I could live for myself and not just in the name of one daughter and for the care of another. Mm -hmm. That I could actually have a life of my own to myself, but it was all internal. And that's a long, it's a decade of my life Mm. that was devoted to my children. Now, my older daughter may dispute that <laughs> because being the sibling of a child who died to bereaved parents is a whole nother category. I don't envy her. She still has this still issues about, it. you know, I'm not going to tell her story, but it's very, very hard because you lose as a sibling, you lose not only your sibling, you lose your parents right as they were sure because they're never the same so that's a whole nother category and a whole nother kettle of fish as they say but i still have anxiety i have it bad i have horrible depression which i write about in the in the epilogue of my book um it's gotten it got worse in the pandemic Sure. Um, as of course, I know I'm not alone in that. Um, and as I stated way back, I'm only starting to learn as I think maybe we all are starting to learn more about the relationship with anxiety, ADHD. Yeah. Autism, which my wife has and just learned about a year and a half ago, which made complete sense to her. Suddenly, her life came into view. Yeah. You know, she's in her 50s, Mm -hmm. you know, and suddenly she went, oh, my God. 
that's what who I am. That's what I've been dealing with my whole life. Right. That's what nobody could get about me. Right. You know. It's interesting you say that. Uh, I have ADHD, and Ada has autism. Yeah, and and oh. it's funny. I I noticed there's some kind of uh, combination that of that. That really works well. You That's know, very interesting. Y- y- there's a complementary aspect yeah. to that. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. It's- I think it's on the same neurodivergent spectrum. But again, I was only learning more about that recently because yeah. Ada and I were reading about it. And I know I, I was diagnosed uh, 14, 15. But what they didn't catch or make note of, because that was the big thing, you know, in school, you have problems. Yeah, yeah, so they didn't yeah, look at the yeah. dysmia yeah. part of it. A doctor last year said, uh, this thing is kind of important. And that's where the bite, well, I thought, I think I'm bipolar after yeah. an episode. Yeah. And then that was taken care of. And once that, if you can't alleviate the things that are yeah. troubling you, like not being able to breathe or having the physical uh, embodiment of the anxiety, if you can't get past that, there's very little you can do elsewhere. Uh, elsewhere, yeah. It's very interesting. We could have a whole discussion. My wife and I were just talking about the, um, uh, the, um, What's the word I want when things come together? And oh, this, convergence. Yes. They, well, it wasn't convergence, but it was the. It, it's the. Uh, it's the middle of ma- many circles. Oh, the Venn diagram. Thank you. My pleasure. The Venn diagram <laughs> of, um, uh, and it is the convergence. Convergence also, but it's that Venn diagram of ADHD, aut- autism, um, uh, uh, depression, and- anxiety giftedness you know mm-hmm. yeah. i mean all of that stuff uh tanya's adhd too and I, I mean i'm telling her story i don't think she'd mind because she writes about it on facebook and all that and maybe sometime we could yeah. have another conversation because yeah. my show is going to be expanding into other things good uh, uh you know we're queer parents that's yeah. the whole the unexpected nature as we talked about in yeah. between yeah. Uh, uh recording uh, so uh, sometime yeah. I want to uh, do a lot of stuff about neurodivergence mm-hmm. because I think while there is newer information out there, especially in the last five years, I think uh, people just discussing it and their experiences yeah. with it, maybe not as robust. Yeah. Well, I'm just learning myself mm-hmm. and learning how do I myself deal with my particular issues where do where do they converge where don't they converge like i'm not bipolar that Mm -hmm. was one thing that you know i discovered i'm just not you know that's not one of my things yeah am i do am i depressive tanya was just telling me this morning i'll just say this and we can move on that someone else who was a PhD who was telling her from Stanford or something and, and, a, and a client of hers and somebody she was talking about um, the uh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, that's OK. Uh, yeah, someone was talking about because uh, you uh, found out, you know, not bipolar, but yeah. and there's a term for it. I can't remember uh, depressive, but there's another like not mono. This uh, is what I was going to talk okay. about. So that there is. um it's not clinical depression for people who are trans like me or mm. non-binary or something. It's called existential depression. Now I'm learning something. This is it makes total sense when you say it. When she said it, I went. <laughs> she said, "This is you. This is you. This is you. It's the depression about even existing in the world, mm-hmm. and not feeling 
a part of, or I, I, I'm using words now, but it's ex, it, 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 it's it, and I, and I, I'm literally this morning, this morning, yeah. I'm standing on Wendy Waldman's deck, and she's telling me about this conversation she's had with this woman, and the woman's saying, no, it's not clinical depression, it's existential depression. And Tanya said, that's you, that's you. Yeah, well, I mean, you look through all the things we talked about in your whole life yeah. and career, um, the sense of holding to yourself, uh, control, and the dysphoria, and then on top of that, grief, uh, and yeah. all that stuff, you know, that adds up. And then I imagine, well, you know, based on my own circumstances or life or whatever, yeah. and you think about what's what adds up to the uh, the 100% mark that then makes you depressed or bipolar or right, whatever, right. Uh, all that stuff makes an indent. Yeah. And then... After all, you got this big dented can, and you're not realizing it because you're like, well, that's just life, right? That's what yeah. happens in yeah. life. But then you find out there's a term for it, and there's a tremendous release even just identifying it, much yes. less the treatment. Yes. No, it's true. And and it just hit with me, and that was today. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it sounds like a big term covering a lot of things, but I get it. But And see, that was the thing, and what I don't talk about in my book, because I in my epilogue, I write about a depressant. Depression I had that really took me to the brink of thinking about, you know, not, not being, being here. here anymore. And originally I had wrote a longer explanation about why that came through, but it sounded like I was whining about the state of the world. Uh huh. So I took it out. Yeah. But the depression came from more than just read. It was about reading in my journals and finding out. You know, I'm the same jerk I've always been for 50 years <laughs> and reading about who I am and the things that I've done and all that. That is absolutely true. But there were some other factors in there that don't aren't that important, but that made me feel unseen. Yeah. As a trans person. Mm -hmm. Now, I was unseen as a woman. As a trans person, I'm still I, in the in the in the gender line, or no, in my song "Walking Through This World," which is also on my album "Walking Through This World." It's you can't see me, you couldn't, you can't see me now, and you couldn't see me then, but I'll be walking through this world as exactly who I am. Mm. You couldn't, you didn't yeah. see who I was back then. You didn't see me. As who I really was, you still don't see me, even though I'm more of who I am today than yeah. I was back then. Mm -hmm. You don't you don't see the full thing. And added to that. As a stigma of being a trans person now, you know, and I'm going to say that. Yeah. It's getting worse and worse as a target, as a stigma. As a, Now, here in Los Angeles, here in... I live in Nashville, Tennessee. The epicenter. Yeah. The drag queen... Banning. Anti-drag uh, bill. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was part of the Love Rising thing, you know, yeah. that happened, you know, uh, at the arena that Allison Russell put together and other people, you know, if you, right before the, the horror of the Covenant shootings... And um, 
so and I'm of course I'm from the Northeast. I've lived in LA. I've lived in New York. I know you know I've lived in Boston. You know all mm-hmm. this stuff. But right now, for the last three years, I've lived in Nashville. So I'm in the epicenter. Right. And I feel that. I feel I felt it even three years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole another story why we moved to Nashville, different thing. But so the depression, going back to existential depression, mm-hmm. is if we don't feel like we're seen. Right. That we're people. Yeah. And of course, this is happening all over the place now mm-hmm. because of the eradication of trans people, the anti drag bills. And that seeps the, into all sorts of stuff. It, oh. And then the platforming of certain people on certain broadcast yeah. Uh, elements. Yeah. So, why, and we could get into a whole nother discussion. And we're talking about trans and non-binary people Mm -hmm. we're talking about now of course there's a whole bunch of other people who end their lives and who have existential depression we're talking right now about queer people yes this is why we don't want to be here anymore because we're not seen as who we are as people because we're not seen as human beings right you know, and I'm sorry if I got out of the frame. No, no, no. Uh, I, I was just checking to make sure yeah. I'm always I'm always checking the two. No, you didn't get yeah. out of frame. Plus, an impassioned out of frame is <laughs> speaks volumes. I, I probably ru- <laughs> I probably ruined it right. No, then. you didn't at all. But no, but I, you were fine. But this is this is another thing. Getting back to service and all that. Right mm-hmm. now, right now, I'm not. You know, I did the worked with bereaved parents. I've worked with alcoholics. I've worked with not as jobs, but as part of my service. I still continue to do that. If the, if the, if the opportunity presents itself, I have a lifetime of experience of what I can share my, what we call an AA, my experience, strength and hope. That's what I need to do. My purpose now as an elder in the trans community, as an out vocal, obviously elder, (laughs) In the trans community is to be of service in our community as a bridge, perhaps, perhaps, if the bridge of Cindy slash Sydney Bullens, the story of, and as some people have said to me, you, what you've got is your story. Yeah. My story is I lived as a woman for 61 years. I had a, all the bells and whistles of the rock career. <laughs> then I got married. Then I had babies. Then I had children. Right. I bore babies. I breastfed them. You know, then one of my children died. And I went through the grief of that. And I did what I did after that in the aftermath to make music and all that stuff. I'm a human being. I've crossed, talk about crossing the line. When you cross the, I turned 70 line, that's a line. Yeah. Because you realize, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's just a short window left and we, you know, you get to be my age and people do die and friends do die. Of course, they die beforehand too, but now it's more. Yeah. My life is existential at this point. Yeah. 
So what have I got to do for the rest of it? Whether I die of a heart attack tomorrow or tonight, or whether I live another 20 years. Why am I going to not take my own life? And I'll say it like that. Because I felt like, I don't, I don't want to die. I just don't want to be here. Right. It's too hard. I say it like it's in the present. I don't feel that way at this moment. But you're describing But the, when yeah. I was there, it's just too fucking hard to exist in this world. Mm-hmm. That's existential depression, which I just learned about today. And that's why we, that's why I have to stay here. That's right. I can't, first of all, I have four beautiful, wonderful grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, my daughter, I have my wife, I have my siblings, I have my family, I have my friends. I'm not going anywhere. But when I want to, I have to stay to myself. When I don't, when I just want to go up to my island home or I want to jump off the bridge over the Cumberland River, I say, no, I can't do it. Right. I can't. No, you can't. It's it's not feasible. It's not even in the possibilities. Doesn't mean we don't think like that. No, absolutely. And have those moments. Right. But I can't because who is behind me? And who it's, will that affect? Who will it? Well, of course, it no, will affect. No, I mean, affect, that's in a sort of yeah, general. The ripple effect is is huge. Even yeah. the immediate effect is catastrophic for my family. Yeah. But beyond that, if there's one kid out there. Yeah. One 12-year-old, one 14-year-old, one 19-year-old, or one 47-year-old. Right. That, I, that gets something from me and my my story, it's just like the planting of the tree rather than the making of the album. It's all mm-hmm. of the same value. If, it is. If, if, if I can help one person, and I know it sounds pedantic and, cra- and stupid, but it isn't. No, it isn't at all. And it's not trite. And it's That's not corny. That's the word I was looking for. It's none of those things. It, it's serious. And I don't know what or who it might have been that had that effect on you in whatever way, because obviously the issues weren't so clear cut and all that could have been Mick Jagger, could have been anything. But when we think about, well, what gave us either the hope to live or yeah. the desire to go, oh, I yeah. like that. Yeah. It could be as simple as I love that record. Oh, I want to listen to yeah. that record again. Yeah. Every time you listen to a record and you're, you're into it or a movie, you're staying alive. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's part. And so joy Sometimes it's a really distant possibility, but and it's sometimes it's impossible to remember that there is joy, like uh, the you know uh, the anxiety attack yeah. era that you well, were Well, my wife about. and I talk about the difference between happiness and joy, mm-hmm. because my wife is a positive person. She wakes up every day and sees all the possibilities. Yeah, and you're like, what the hell are you talking exactly. about? Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, what the? What are you on? By yeah, the way, exactly. Did you start taking I mean, something? we have arguments about this. Yeah. You know, it's like. And I told her before we even got together, when we were talking about, thinking about getting together, I said, happy is not a word that's in my vocabulary. (laughs) I've heard of it. It's just not, you know? And yeah, exactly. I said, but joy is. Yeah. 
Joy is in my vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Joy is something that you can feel in the moment. Yeah. That you can look out over the ocean or the mountains or a flower or in a baby, your baby, you know, and say, oh, my God, that's so fantastic. Yeah. And you feel joy in that moment. My grandchildren, you know, and my friends, you know, I feel lots of joy playing music in lots of ways, you know, all, all the time. Yeah. You know, eating ice cream, which is my food. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I did mention it. You've mentioned it a couple times in the yeah, book. Yeah, no. Ice Do you have a favorite is... flavor? Anything with chocolate or coffee. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on that. So the uh, chocolate, chocolate coffee combo. Yeah. And the chips. I got I to gotta have the chips in there. But, um, <laughs> uh, or as they say in Massachusetts, the jimmies. Oh, yes, that's right. It's not sprinkles, ladies and gentlemen, or bi- non-binary everybody's, you know, it's... Jimmy's. Jimmy's. Yeah. But anyway. Um, so anyway, yeah, I have to be here because I have great hope in the youth. Yeah. And, and, to, and to also, then you, like, as you said, you have to do your part to make sure that there is the possibilities for the youth. That's what I, that's, that's right. So I have to stick around and I, and I've got a book coming out on June 6th. So, you know. And which is called once again? Transelectric, My Life as a Cosmic Rockstar. By Sidney Bullens with forward by Sir Elton John. So in a, what was I going to say? Oh, sorry. I had, I was like, oh, and it's available about- on all Amazon.com, all the online stuff. Plus uh, you'll be able to get it in your bookstore physically after June 6th. All the reputable bookstores and some of the disreputable ones. Right? That's right. That's, yeah, that's how I like. And to I guess if I'm doing the sales pitch, I have to say again that I've got a new single coming out called "Not with You," uh, with Beth Nielsen Chapman and me a duet. And we don't know, and maybe your audience knows, if it's the first uh, um, mainstream, I guess I'll say, music video between. Between a trans man and a cis woman. I don't know. A non-queer woman. It could be. And we'll have to find out. So we'll find out. Uh, not electronica, not dance, not, you know, it's it's a mainstream. But uh, so in my album, Walking Through This World, but also The Refugees, my trio with Wendy Waldman. I got a lot of stuff going on. Which is great. And it's uh, coming out it's further next inspiration month for folks yeah. that might be in a dark place currently or have been or might be experiencing existential depression. And one note about the ADHD thing. Back when we were talking about your cocaine era, mm-hmm. I had the thought, as I always do, with when anyone who in the 70s particularly or 60s or any time before mm-hmm. Ritalin was sort of well-known mm-hmm. or, or that there was treatments or even ADHD existed. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people like yourself, David Bowie, et cetera, ADHD. Yeah. Because it, I imagine it wasn't like, we all know the people who do coke and they're like yeah, nuts yeah, and they're crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some people who take it and they're just like, yeah, okay. I feel kind of normal, <laughs> you know? Yeah. This is cool. I can like yeah. drive and I, cu- yeah. I couldn't sleep on it, mm. but I could, I, I'm sorry. I couldn't go to sleep at night on it, but I did. I could sleep with it, but not at night. Yeah. But I, but I, it was, it like made me feel feel more normal more like i had my head on straight and strangely because a lot of this doesn't make sense to a lot of people who don't have adhd calmer yeah (laughs) and calm is not a word that's always in my vocabulary so or mine but i'm on stimulant medication and it works uh but of course there's anxiety it's a whole yeah it's a whole a kettle of fish as you said yeah uh and uh i think oh and uh it's in your book and it's quite moving in the book but um, anything you would like to say about 
realizing that not only were you trans, but coming to terms with the language and how your friend inspired you to transition? Sure. Um, briefly, um, I was resigned to living my life as Cindy and as a woman, I was 61 years old. I actually started feeling like I actually started wrote in my journal three days before I had this epiphany, which I'll talk about, like, okay, okay, I'm at peace with myself. This is it for the rest of my life. I'm just going to um, live as Cindy. I'm older now, and I have grandchildren and so on and so forth. I had the the name change docs, documents in my desk at that time, even before. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Not about being trans, but because I always hated the name Cindy and it was so ridiculously feminine. Sorry to all you Cindy's out there. <laughs> and um so anyway, one day my friend uh I I had a uh, a sponsee as we call them in AA who I was I not quite mentoring, but you're kind of a guide uh when they first come in and get sober and you're a have a little more under your belt of a young woman and uh we were together i was her sponsor in aa for about two years and then she moved to new york and then up to boston and i got a facebook message saying uh call me uh from and i knew she had changed her name i'm not going to mention names but she had changed her name to a more non-binary name and um, so I called and I heard a lower voice on the voicemail and I had, ha I had an inkling anyway in my br brain. I don't know why I had, but in as far as I'm concerned, she was a lesbian and, and she thought I was a lesbian cause I had had a, uh, a relationship with a woman before and, um, and but we never use that terminology, whatever. So I call and hear this low voice, and I thought, okay, I get it, I think. And then I'm going to use the word she, call uh, the pronoun she called me back and said to me, I'm transitioning from male to fe female to male, and I'm living my life as a man. And my brain blew apart because I did a little research now and then on this, that, and the other, what, you know, transgender this, and I knew there was the word, the word now, and, uh, you know, obviously it'd come in 20, 30 years before. And I had, you know, read about, I had read Chaz Bono's book and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I knew, I knew, I mean, I watched the news, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, all this stuff. And I thought, Oh, you know, that's great. And I did pick up Chaz Bono's book and mm -hmm. read it, uh, before I knew I was going to transition. And I thought that's great, you know, and, but I just didn't see how it could possibly apply to me. How I could possibly? I had grandkids. I had a career. I was not out, me. It's not I was me. out in the yeah. road. Yeah. No, I knew I was trans. No, no. It, I mean, in but, terms of the doing, but the, in terms yeah, yeah. of the logistics of actually doing it. And then when my friend called and told me 
his story and I knew him so well. It was almost like, you know, any friend who comes and says, well, I don't know, anything, and you say, oh, I can do that, or yeah. can I do that, or whatever. So I did, but I got off the phone. I, I asked him every question I'd wanted to ask in many years. It was more about me than about him, <laughs> you know. Uh, where did you go? How do you feel? What did you do? You know, what made you do it? You know, what? You know, all this. I was just like, blah, 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 blah. I got off the phone with him. And I literally fell to my knees and I started sobbing. I was sobbing for the person I never was. The person who nobody ever saw. The person who I knew I was from the time I was three years old. Mm-hmm. What I had never done or couldn't have done or didn't know to do. So I was sobbing for my life unlived mm-hmm. as a man. And it wasn't so much about what I did as a woman or anything. It was nothing like, you know, I had it. I have a life. I have a history, all, a legacy, all that stuff. It was about what might have been or what should have been. Sure. And it took a long time for me to get up off the floor. I called my daughter who lived across the street, who was the only person on earth I felt I could say something to because she knew how I felt in my body. Picked her up. She said, Mom, you have to do something. You have to do something about this, you know, whatever it is. We decided I would go to a gender therapist. Now, my mind is completely, completely blown away by this time Mm -hmm. i mean i'm just going in a thousand different directions okay so to make a long story short or a detailed story short (laughs) it's all in the book yeah it was july 11th uh 2011 when my friend called me on september 1st 2011 I took my first shot of testosterone and there were more hoops back then to go through than there are even now. Mm -hmm. But that's how short it was. The minute that was tripped, I went for it. Now, let me just say that I believe that the real, the, the reason that that moment was so miraculous is because I wasn't in the abject grief of losing Jesse. Mm -hmm. My daughter Reed was married and had children. So was not, I was not responsible for anyone directly. I was not, and had not been in a relationship for years at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was single. I had the psychic space to address the thing that I had never truly addressed before. And even though I was 61 years old, it was time. And the blowback I got from my family and friends was not so much anger or it was, what the hell are you thinking about now? 
you know, you're you're older. You're you've got a whole career. You're still working. What's going to happen now? What you could lose half the my sister said you're going to lose half you could lose half the people in your life. Hmm. But it was too late. The yeah. minute that possibility like, oh my god, I actually know somebody who did it now. My friend is 20 years younger than me. It didn't matter. No. I the reason that I Actually, I, I thought I can do this. And if here's here's where my rebelliousness, call it what you will, my, my can do spirit, my, <laughs> my spirit, my chutzpah, my whatever it is that the walking into the room where Elton John, whatever it is, it's like I cannot die and say, shit, I could have done that. I have plenty that I can say about that. But, but you don't want it to be that one. was too big. Yeah. I didn't want it to be this. What if? I had too many what ifs already. What if I couldn't let it go? This was about, talk about existential. Yeah. This was about my being. Sure, I could have lived as Cindy. I could have had a nice, quiet life in Maine. I could have continued maybe singing with the refugees. That was really kind of the only thing I was doing, you know, at the time musically, mm -hmm. you know, I would have seen my grandkids all the time. Just been a nice turned into a night. I can't even say it. And a nice old woman, you know, but you didn't have to, you know what it, 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 it's not the map of my life. And really only you know the map of your yeah, life. It's not what I'm here to do and apparently a much against my will a lot of the times <laughs> much like we talked about before yeah you know yeah. i want to run away a lot it's not my story uh, and my story is what you're hearing but my story is uh-uh gotta go for it mm -hmm. i had a long time in between i don't regret having children for one second even with the death of my daughter it was an experience as you know now, and we'll find out as you go on, it's the hardest thing I ever did, mm -hmm. and it's the best thing I ever did, is having children. Mm -hmm. And, but I'm not here to play footsie with life. Right, and as you mentioned before, you have to live your life for you. Yeah. And if you don't, then really are you of service to anyone else. Well, that And that was the big question. Who am I living for? Yeah. On that day. On that day that I got that phone call. Yeah. Who am I living for? And that question continued when I started to retract and, oh, no, I can't do this. And what about that? And how do I do this? Mm -hmm. and who's going to, you know hate me and who's going to blah, 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 blah. And by the way, there are people who hate me. Really? Once they found out that you I were... have, don't go looking for them. There are memorial sites that have my name on them. You know, I always forget about that dark side of the internet where there's, they t it's like you're a, not a cartoon character or there, you know, you're a fictional character like, uh, like misery, the, the yeah, Stephen yeah. King thing. Yeah. I'm dead. I'm on these memorial sites as having died in 2000. They probably say 2012. I can't remember because uh, that's when I came out publicly. Yeah. 
Cindy Bullens dead it in 2012. A lot of them. Yeah. That's got to be that's got to be spooky to it see. It was spooky when when I got my sister actually was the one who told me because she had a friend who went to Google me and something came up and she said, "What's that?" You know. What happened to Cindy? Right? I saw yeah, something yeah, online. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was crazy. It's crazy. But sometimes like we were talking about before with the people who can't handle the grief, handle that we can be afraid of uh, are we, are we going to lose this are we going to lose that and, I, and it's kind of like that thing when talking about yeah. bringing up something that's too sensitive to talk about with yeah. a partner if you're going to lose them because of that maybe they shouldn't be around yeah. you anyway yeah. and it's still hard very but you got to keep that in mind because yeah. it's, it's true it's all it's all about the truth and are we living our truth or are we not and living the truth is hard. And that, mm-hmm. I, I also talk about my wife is all about that, too. She's a she's a memoir coach, a story coach. Mm. She's the one who says, no, that's not your story. Yeah. That's your story. What you just told me that you never want to tell another person in your life. That's the story. Yeah. You know, and it's like, that's the truth. That's the truth of you. That's what are you going to do with that? Where are you going to take that? And it's like. <laughs> it's terrifying but then uh you as you said before you want to be of service to other people you want to help younger generations mm-hmm. uh know more about what can be and the possibilities and how to avoid certain pitfalls that yeah. you may have experienced and that's uh sometimes unfortunately it feels like na- through naked honesty yeah has to be because you, it has to be visceral yeah we're not we're not here to just bypass any, obviously, I'm not here to buy, <laughs> apparently, to bypass anything, yeah. you know? And, and uh, if we don't impart the fact that life can suck, yeah, that it can be absolutely horrific that that it can tear your guts out and stomp on the ground stomp on them on the ground yeah that your mind will be blown over and over again that you will be threatened that you will you know be dragged through the mud either figuratively or physically or whatever way and i don't mean that as like get ready folks you know it's it's like that's life Yes. And can we, but here's, and, and, and maybe we'll end on this. That's what I was thinking, yeah. It's all about community and connectivity. If we don't, if I go off on my island and sit there and never see another human being again and love being by the ocean and walking on the beach and picking up stones and kayaking in the ocean, you know, oh, that's all fine. And I, I can do that for a week or two. But I'm alone. Yeah. And then you're alone. Not that you don't have other people, but somebody else doesn't get no, me. Exactly. Somebody everyone... else doesn't get the experience of me. That's what AA is all about. It's mm-hmm. about community and connectivity and relation and and recognition. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's what we're all about. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the young people and the old people like me, you know, and people in between like you. Yeah. uh, You know, that's where we, that's why protests work. That's why, 
you know, gatherings work yeah. on both sides, unfortunately. But on mm-hmm. our side, if we don't recognize within ourselves that we need each other and that I have to stick around, you have to stick around, that each one of us plays that little minuscule part and it, that adds up to the big hole. But it's all about community. And I'm grateful because I always fe- I feel alone a lot of the time. Even though people look at me and say, oh, hey, you got this, you got that, you got this, you got that. But what we learned, what did we learn today about existential depression? Yeah. Meaning that I feel alone no matter what. Right. I'm not. You're not. Right. But you can still feel that way. I can still feel that way, but I'm not. So I'm saying... To anybody who feels alone in this, even though you've got support and this and that and this and that, you're really not. You're not. And no matter what dark corner your brain goes in to find the ugly situation or person who did you wrong 15, 20 years ago, which is where the brain can go. Or a person who tells you you're a jerk or an asshole or or you're sick or demented or whatever you're shitty, words you don't have talent shitty, whatever you know. but even about being a trans person though. oh sure you know it, yeah. it, you know I, that's what i mean is that for for young trans people and non-binary people people who are different who are marginalized you know any cultural or societal yeah. norm that's outside the norm they're most of us are in the margins. Yes. Yeah. Most of us. Yeah. It's those old white men, of which I am now perceived as uh, in many places, if you don't know me. <laughs> you know, the dinosaurs we talk about and all that stuff. They they are who they are. And the white women, too. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm saying it out loud doesn't mean that there aren't jerks in every culture and every but there's a uh, really high incident of (laughs) but in this day and age Mm -hmm. you know but i would like to say you know that you know and again not to sound trite you know we do i i i have to know that there's somebody else like me that somebody has had my experience, whether it's at a, as a bereaved parent or as a trans person. You know, those are the two big things that are the the hardest in my life. And when I say hard, I mean complex and complex and going through the world with those things. You know, um, I love being who I am. I love my, my body. It's mm-hmm. getting older, but you know, it's, it's, but that's the, that's the goal, right? We all yeah. really should want to get older. And even, yeah. even the notion that why now? I mean, you've, you, you know, you're old. Yeah. It, it's inherently ageist, which is another one of those things that's ingrained into us through who knows culture or whatever yeah. uh, from the dinosaurs, uh, you know, prizing youth as the only time that you can live. Yeah. And let me tell you something. You can learn a lot from us. we've lived it yeah and i have to put in a word for the baby boomers first of all biden isn't a baby boomer trump is barely a baby boomer you know uh, most of these old dogs in the congress the really old ones are not baby boomers they're the generation ahead the baby boomers and, and yeah there are you know believe me there's a lot of of baby boomers that are on the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. 
but we did it. We we were the '60s, you know. We we shook it up back then. Well, you know, I I always uh, sort of frown on younger generations poo-pooing previous generations in broad strokes. It's like yes. Uh, every generation wants to Im- should want to improve on the advancements made of the prior generation, but yeah. you also have to recognize the advancements made. And, By the, yeah, exactly. And also, maybe they didn't use the same language that is uh, yeah. um, approved now yeah. or is uh, comfortable now. Yeah. But look at the context, look at the rest of it, and take yeah. the knowledge from that. Yeah, and take each individual or, or as as they are. Yeah. I mean, you know, I learned a lot from my elders and i also didn't learn a lot from my elders including or maybe learned my parents what you didn't want to be yeah it, it's you know you pick and choose and yeah. uh uh but i'm you know i'm yeah sure to uh, anyway i i'm grateful to if i hadn't transitioned i wouldn't know i wouldn't have experienced even with all the stuff I've gone through as a trans person, I wouldn't be sitting here. Well, I'm really happy that you've been sitting here today. Yeah. And I've loved our conversation. I look forward to uh, more in the future. And um, thank you for imparting all of your wisdom. And Th- Thank you. Oh, thank you, Sid. It's been a, a delight. Right. Take care. You too. Head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends to get these episodes well in advance, ad-free and completely uncut, and plus a lot of other bonus options. So go over there now to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends, check out the options, support the show, and set yourself free.